gals, ghouls, and badass days of the world. This is your co-host Cass Clark here, just dropping in to say sorry about not having any new episodes for November. But as a way to make it up to you, loyal listeners, we have plenty of bonus episodes coming this month, including, drumroll please, Horror Hangover Show's first interview. Uh, and this one is going to be with Josh Rubin talking about A Wounded Fawn, which just hit Shudder this past month and likely Werewolves Within, Scare Me, and then a spoilerly review chat about A Wounded Fawn as well. But until then, here's your first holiday treat of the month, our annual Not Safe for Work, more lightly edited and silly holiday horror chat with friend of the pod, Yutaka from the Horror Hour. This time, we're diving into the Black Christmas franchise and all its delightful messiness. Now, let's go deck the halls with some fucking gore, shall we? Welcome back, bat. Oh fuck, I forgot my tagline. Keep Gal this gold. in. Don't cut this. No. All is calm. All is bright. Who is in my house tonight? Today we're going to be talking about the three Black Christmas movies. So, uh, Ryan, would you like to lead us into the history of Black Christmases? Yeah, we got a, a real long one today. So everybody, stop whatever else you're doing. Get ready. Take notes. We've got uh, Black Christmas from 1974, Black Christmas from 2006, and Black Christmas from 2019. On to you, Cass. <laughs> well, thank you for that in-depth retelling of all the Black Christmases in the universe. And up first would be 1974's Black Christmas. So we're starting with Black Christmas 1974, which I think is kind of a fascinating piece of film history um, and a movie I really like. Uh, both of those things are true. Before we get into it, how familiar are y'all with Bob Clark's career? Not very. Yeah, right, same. yeah. So he started out doing indie stuff, but he started out doing two horror movies that were probably way more graphic than the original Black Christmas. There was Children Shouldn't Play with Dead Things, which is a really good write-up in the Fangoria that came out this summer, and also Death Dream slash Dead of Night, which is about a Vietnam veteran who comes back from the dead. It's like a monkey's paw situation. His mother wishes Ooh. him back to life. Ooh. And he's just like this rotting corpse going around having sex and stuff and killing <laughs> people because he can't help himself because he's a rotting corpse. Um, oh. They were his second and third films. I just need to pause. I just need to yes. pause there. This is the beat. A rotting corpse. We can't help but have sex. Whew. All right. Well, you need to tell David about this <laughs> film if he hasn't seen it already. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, those were Clark's second and third films, first and second horror films. And later on, he went on to direct some just very like surprising movies. Like you would not expect from the Black Christmas guy. Porky's, which I've never seen, but I've heard <gasps> lots of things about. Oh, I've seen it. <laughs> would you like to give us a rundown, Cass? Um, a lot of peepholes, a lot of booby jokes, and a lot of just like, hey, 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 kind of humor. That's, well, that's gotcha. <laughs> but there's one, because it's still... <laughs> thinking about it still cracks me up where they're in the office and, and the gym teacher and the two principals and he's like maybe we should get in and bring in a sketch artist so they can sketch the <laughs> sorry it's it is a film yeah oh my god Porky's. it's so, so bad so within bad. three years directing porkies he also directed another very famous christmas movie a christmas story what? With Ralphie, the leg lamp. Um, you're gonna shoot your eye out, kid. 
So Bob Clark had a hell of a career. He unfortunately died in the mid-2000s, around the time the first remake came out. He and his son were hit by a drunk driver as they were driving mm-hmm. on the, the highway. So on to some interesting trivia about Black Christmas. Have y'all heard of the Canadian tax shelter era? No. No. So <laughs> I was reading about it on the Canadian encyclopedia. I was vaguely familiar, but here's the basically that work. The Canadian government would give producers a 100% tax break for whatever they spent filming as long as the film was, I'm quoting here, at least 75 minutes long, had at least one producer and two thirds of the above the line creative team who were Canadian and uh, perform at least 75% of the production and post-production services in Canada. So this Um, led to what's called um, Canucksploitation. It led to like uh, David Cronenberg's early career. A ton of that was in uh, Canada for, for tax reasons. It also led to The Burning, if you all have seen that, um, yes. The Changeling, Terror Train, just to name a few. Wow. And the goal was like, because Canada would also fund some of these movies through a separate entity. There was, I think, some tension within the Canadian government about having uh, some of the this stuff was because they want Canada to have like a, a robust film industry that made Canada lots of money. Mm-hmm. And some of it was they wanted Canada to have like a great arts and culture. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit of both of those things, some tension there. And eventually there was an article written by a very angry journalist <laughs> who had seen David Cronenberg's film Shivers. And he said basically in the article, like, our tax dollars are paying for this. So that's the background of the movies, like how this movie mm-hmm. got made. Because I would say this movie, and y'all can feel free to disagree, was not made to to make a bunch of money. Yeah, I'm curious. I'm going to look up the budget for it because since they had such a big tax break, I'm curious how much money they actually put into the film. Oh, shit. The budget for this film, uh, granted inflation, 70s, um, but the budget for this film in 1974 was around $620,000 for a film, which is very, very slim. Yeah. Yeah. It was a pretty low budget. How'd y'all like it? I mean, it's a classic. I think it still scares me to this day. I think there's the whole, uh, well, spoiler territory, if you haven't seen it, entering to spoiler territory now. The call is coming from inside the house horror, I think is one of the scariest things that could happen. Like having someone like living in your walls or someone hiding in your attic or in your closet is just so freaky because it's so like possible and you would never expect it. There's a term for that too, which I didn't know. Ooh, what is it? Oh, it's called think- frogging. Frogging? Huh. P H R O G G I N G. Yeah, frogging. And the only way I know of this is because there's a lifetime series based around real experiences <gasps> of this in the US. Oh, hate it. I hate it. <laughs> my oh, my skin. goodness. Oh, God. So, yeah, no, I, I would have to agree with Cass on this because it's. Uh, it's so creepy because then it suddenly starts to make you think when you hear noises in your house or in your attic or things like that, it is, it's unsettling. Do you remember like what was the longest time someone was frogging for? No, but there were some crazy, like the, I think the one that shocked me the most though, was it was a case where not only was the person in their attic, but they were able to go through the insulation and just make like a way through like inside the walls. I was like, oh, oh damn. Nope. I was like, nope. nope. <sighs> I, I never had any proof of it, but the house I lived in before we got this one, 
I swear there was someone else there. We were there for like 13, 14 months. And I just always felt like there was just like someone else in the house at all times. It was very weird. It's possible. (laughs) No, it's not. Stop it. (laughs) Brian's like, I have a baby. I can't think about this right now. It's terrifying. I didn't have a baby in that house. So (laughs) this house, I don't think there's anyone else here. I think it's too small. I know all the rooms. We also have Tabby there, though. Yeah, no, I gotta turn this way. <laughs> uh, for, for listeners, those of you who are off, I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead, Cass. No, you go. I'm off. Uh, for those of you who are off camera, I knew that Yutaka was scared of Tabby, and I wore a black shirt and put Tabby right on my shoulder. And so when I turn in my chair, she appears. <laughs> so mean. <laughs> so so sorry, hateful. <laughs> I love you, Yutaka. It's all right. It's all right. You know, frogging, it exists. Just be on the lookout, y'all. <laughs> Moving on. Probably the most famous thing about Black Christmas, well, one of the most famous things is the abortion plot line. Yeah. Um, which I felt like was handled quite well. And I wanted to hear your all's thoughts on it. Yeah, I think it was revolutionary how well it was handled, especially because it came out right after like the Roe versus Wade decision was passed legally and to already have like a film being pro-abortion in the 70s and to talk about on screen I thought was pretty cool because a lot of the times we're still too afraid to do that in a lot of films today Mm -hmm. I would have to agree I I actually you know I always say I think horror films can do so much in terms of being able to handle tough topics or topics that I think people don't want to talk about at times and I thought they did a really wonderful job with that and I just I think it adds to also why I find this kind of an iconic film because of the error it was made and the subject matter mm-hmm. I just think that's great do y'all feel like they're saying in the the, the commentary and all like the dvd specials and blu-ray specials they blue right now they all kind of argued that uh no films today or really any film since has had like as good a take on abortion. Do y'all agree, disagree? I would disagree. There's this film with Jenny Slate called Obvious Child, I believe. And it's all about that. The whole film starts off where uh she's a comedian and she has this like one night stand with this like guy that it is like nice enough and she was feeling and like, but you know, wants to get back out there and then after like one date she finds out she's pregnant and the whole film is about her like journey to um to an abortion but it's like funny it's it's like really funny so i would say that one i think did it better but it's because the movie is like only about that yeah i've not seen that movie so i'll have to see it but i i mean because i haven't seen that i would tend to agree because Mm -hmm. nothing stands out in my mind although i and i didn't get a chance to screen it but there is something coming out to where there uh, it's like an anthology horror film. And it is all about like uh, women's right to choose. As of right now, from what I've seen, I would say, yes, this to me has been the only one that's really done it effectively. And I think Black Christmas, um, the, the original, had a lot of these moments where the killing was implied rather than explicitly shown. Mm. How'd y'all feel about that? I feel like it was a very... 70s era thing i mean obviously there are some films that are very bloody that take place in the 70s so don't quote me on that one but i think cutaway shots were more common then um and it was more about like seeing the splatter but not seeing the body mm. and i wonder if it had to do with ratings i'm curious about that i don't i don't know though oh people don't come for me when i say this i don't know <laughs> if maybe also the practical effects were as up to par as they later mm. became 
and yeah. say like the 80s. So I'm fine with how they handled it because, you know, I do love the burning. But even then I'm like, ooh, because it was pretty much it was, you know, a sorority house. I don't know. I think at that time, too, that would have just seemed like vicious and over the top if they really would have. Hmm really went gory with that so i liked what they did i feel like it felt a lot like uh the texas chainsaw massacre to me Mm. in that like i think the kills were kind of brutal Mm. but also like very much implied especially the bag over the the head Mm. the texas chainsaw massacre is another movie that they kind of talk about as being the first slasher along with peeping tom psycho and a bay of blood and Mm. this one black christmas the ones I've heard, um, I think it actually, if you asked me, I would say it all comes together in Halloween. But this is one of the other film where the elements are all kind of coming together. Mm. I'm curious where you all feel about like, what is the first slasher? Is it this? Is it something else? Do you care? Well, I don't really feel invested in it. I feel like if people are good for you, (laughs) (laughs) but like, I just want a good movie. And I just, um, I want to, I'm more interested in like what, makes a slasher slasher and as like horror cinema changes what do we consider a slasher because i think that definition changes in the same way that like we don't really do final girls anymore unless we're doing legacy horror like throwback so yeah i feel like that's more interesting to me when i think about the earliest that i can remember it would probably be this or texas chainsaw i would say it helped start a genre that became more like i think they started to realize that this could be profitable this mm. could be something. Black Christmas and Texas Chainsaw Massacre both came out in 1974. Well, shit. So it's a <laughs> photo finish on those two. The two movies actually feel a lot alike with like the big political message, the implied mm-hmm. kills, mm-hmm. the proto slasher status or slasher status, depending on who you ask. I think the other thing I found very, very striking about this movie is that there is no backstory for Billy. In the DVD commentary, Bob Clark says they had a complete backstory all written out, but then they decided the the film was better if you kind of just got these like grotesque phone calls and you saw Billy killing people and nothing else. You think that makes it scarier, less scary, better, worse? I like the mystery. And I think (laughs) I'll get into a little bit later on with the 2006 Black Christmas, but I think too much backstory gets to the point where it can just become an entirely different film. And I think like, if you want that, then have a prequel, like do the plural treatment to it. I like it when I don't know why the killer is necessarily killing or what his deal is. I think that makes it scarier. Yeah, I just, honestly, I thought Billy was just a spoiled little brat. Honestly, I mean, and I think this was of the era too, where men also still thought that what they say goes kind of thing like i i don't get the um the creepy phone calls but also i could see that as a scare tactic from his character Mm -hmm. so i mean i loved it but i didn't need a backstory because i i didn't like him yeah (laughs) yeah yeah he's definitely very unlikable between the the phone calls and the the murdering (laughs) how'd y'all like the ending i feel like the ending was kind of excellent yeah, I liked it. What do you think makes the ending excellent? Not that I disagree, but I'm just curious what you like the most about it. I think it's the implication that they have the wrong person and that Billy is still in the house, I think works really, really well. And that we have Olivia Hussey's character sitting there sleeping. I think she was under sedation even. Yeah. So you kind of just 
it's heavily implied that she is about to get got pretty hard. My first thought was I would not be sleeping in that house yeah. after all that. Like why they didn't take her to a hospital or I'm like that would like it, it blows my mind a little bit because I was just like I would like get me out of this damn house. Mm-hmm. Um I didn't mind it. I, I enjoyed it. I do like the the subtle like, ooh, is something going to happen? And I like her character a lot. So I'd still like to think in my head that she lived. To me, I was just like, what are you doing? No, all your all your friends have been murdered in this house. Why would you honor? No. <laughs> I think they also... Like the police did not do a full sweep of the house because they think they got the killer. So I don't think they know that Claire or the house mother are dead. No, I don't think so. But your point about them probably having to go to the hospital, absolutely right. They should absolutely be in a hospital (laughs) in that situation. The, The fact that, and maybe it's, this could be more of a like, rich white culture the fact that like they brought the physician and he sedated her there what that that blew me away (laughs) um so i got some trivia from y'all about the the movie so lynn griffin who played claire the the woman with the bag over her head Mm -hmm. that was just like there was no props or anything it was just a plastic bag over her face and she was holding her breath in all the scenes where we see her corpse Oh, and when Lynn Griffin started doing horror shows, she would put a plastic bag over her face during the events. Whenever she said in one of the interviews that, like, if she's at a table and she's not getting enough attention, she just puts a plastic bag over her head, and people start coming over. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness! Other fun things about the plastic bag you know, the scene where the cat is crawling on the bag, smelling and licking the face, Mm -hmm. it's because they put catnip on the bag. they also threw that cat at lynn griffin for the the cat jump scare (laughs) and they threw it at her repeatedly to get the shot right poor cat oh my god but also poor performer getting the cat (laughs) every time oh my Uh, god (laughs) so in the hockey scene art hendel who's playing the the goalie said that the 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 players taking shots on goal were the the college hockey players from that college. And he was saying that he thinks that they must have believed if they shot the puck harder, it would be more likely to get in the film. So they were just absolutely beating the shit out of him with those (laughs) shots. There's a surprising celebrity who's long dead who watched this movie every year at Christmas and now his family still watches it. Oh. Any guesses as to who? A famous celebrity? Like... How famous? Like when he was alive, he was like the most famous person on earth, possibly. Oh, oh, okay. Um, hmm. Famous in music, more specifically, famous for appropriating the music of uh, black people. Oh, well, then that's got to be Elvis. Yeah. If you're saying that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, sorry to the Elvis lovers, but he really did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, he didn't give them credit, which I feel like was the, the biggest issue there. Um, yeah. <laughs> do you all have other thoughts, questions, things you want to discuss about Black Christmas 1974? I loved the house mother. She was something else cracked me up thinking about every time she was looking she had booze hidden all throughout the house 
she's yes. dedicated. She's dedicated. So in the uh, the DVD commentary, Bob Clark said that uh, that's based on his real aunt. He would actually do that. And he said there's like just there were secret drinkers in this family. That's kind of how they are. <laughs> that's yeah, I wonder what his aunt had to say about that. <laughs> I don't know if she would have been alive when he was recording the commentary. Cause I think he recorded it in like the mid 2000s. <laughs> oh yeah. Just missed it. Maybe Giving away all her hiding places. <laughs> <laughs> This film explicitly inspired Halloween with uh, Bob Clark saying in the commentary that John Carpenter actually asked him what he would do in a Black Christmas sequel. Mm. And Bob Clark kind of described like he would have Billy go to jail or an asylum and then escape and come back at Halloween and start stalking the girls again. And he even gave it the name Halloween. He said that like John Carpenter did the actual work of making a movie, doing the casting, editing, writing. Yeah. And Deborah um, Hill. And Deborah Hill, absolutely, yes. She deserves as much credit as John Carpenter, for sure. Yeah, I love that anecdote. I think it's so fascinating. If that had come out and he had created it, it's almost like the pre-Michael Doherty kind of vibe, right? Like we get like Trick or Treat and then Krampus. And I would love to see if it would have inspired other horror filmmakers to do that. Like each holiday have a kind of horror theme, even though we have plenty of like holiday horror. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the things that's really interesting watching all the DVD extras was that like, People were giving Black Christmas a lot of credit for inspiring all of those other holiday movies. Mm -hmm. I think like, I guess you could say that, but I think like there was going to be holiday horror no matter what. Yeah, that's true. I think the same way about like when people say like something's the first slasher, like every element of a slasher existed before any film put them all together. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's cool that it did that. That's true. Like the gunpowder was there. This was just the spark. Mm -hmm. I would agree to that. Yeah. So are we ready to talk uh, the cult classic 2006 Black Christmas? All right. So so this is about, um, as we said, Black Christmas, the 2006 superior version. I'm just kidding. It's not. <laughs> but it is a very huge cult classic. Mainly, I mean... The gays, we love it. We we stand it for so many great things. Mainly, you know, the women rock mm-hmm. in this film. And so it is somewhat of a similar setting. We have the sorority and we do have, uh, well, you get two things. You get um, a killer in an asylum, Billy, and you do get his backstory, which is fun but it goes on a little bit too long Mm -hmm. um and there's a lot of eye gouging in this movie so if you don't like that maybe might want to steer clear a little bit and the other thing though is while you're led to believe that you know billy is coming home throughout this entire thing though the women are getting knocked off one by one Mm -hmm. and spoiler it's actually his sister agnes Mm mm-hmm they're taking back their house. Why do we gays love it? Well, it had all these iconic actresses. Mainly you had Lacey Chabert. Mm-hmm, the Hallmark Mary- Queen. Love yes. it. Yes. <laughs> Mary Elizabeth Winstead, who I adore because she was oh, yeah. a screen queen for a while. So good in 10 Cloverfield Lane. Oh, she's fantastic. She is phenomenal in that movie. Oh my God, she's so good in that. And then everybody's favorite little sis, <laughs> uh, Michelle Trachtenberg. 
And then for Arrow stands, we have Katie Cassidy. Mm-hmm. Like, and then we also have an original from the first one, Andrea Martin, yeah. who's also just a star in general. And so I it just it had this cast, and there was just so much bitchiness. And so for me, I love it. And as a gore hound, I love it even more because there is lots of blood spatter, but when they like, I mean, they are pulling out these eyes and just yanking them. So yeah, that's that's you know 2006. Oh, and like straightened hair. Their hair was. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure Mary Winstead uh, was wearing a wig because I kept staring at her hair. I was like, "There's no way." I was looking at uh, what she was like filming that year, and then she's in something else that year with like really short hair. I'm like, "This has to be a wig." And uh, yeah, <laughs> it doesn't look like it's doing any anyone good. <laughs> that's my one critique of uh, of hair as a film is like, just take it off. It's just. Just don't, just don't have it. <laughs> I watch it quite a bit. There's also an alternate ending out there. I don't know if that's on the DVD. Uh, I had to actually find it on YouTube. Huh. Hmm. What, was uh, what happens the... in the alternate yeah. ending? It's just a different way that, oh, what's her name? Uh, Claire's sister, why can't I remember her name? Um, is killed. Oh. It's Claire's sister's hmm. name. I think I would remember that. She was the cutest. Nope, I don't. Went over my head. Oh, Lee. There we go. Yeah, Lee's death is different. It's still, and I mean, it's still in the hospital ends, but they just kill her in a different way. Gotcha. She should have lived. So with that, though, we all all heard some of my thoughts. So Ryan, let's hear some of your thoughts on this film. So I do not share the same love and affection for it that you do. I don't hate it. I think my favorite moment that just like took me back to childhood was when uh, Billy used the sharpened candy cane to <laughs> yes. stab the the guard in the jugular. I thought that was great. I think it's extremely unrealistic that a candy cane could do that. But I feel like this movie for me is working at its best when it's like really leaning into like campy nostalgia. Because when we were kids, we used to like I used to eat the thing and then we'd like poke each other with the the sharp end, me and my, my siblings. And that was always really fun. I like the eyeballs. I think they did too many eyeballs. <laughs> I think it's all a reference to that one shot in the 1974 Black Christmas where you see yeah. Billy's eye. I think someone was in production. They're like, this is a great shot. What if the killer <laughs> only does eyeball kills? Mm-hmm. And the cocaine won out on that one because they, they really <laughs> stuck to that that idea. I uh, wonder if it's also like a Bob Clark throwback because also Porky's, the peepholes, there's so many like eye shots. So I wonder if they're like, do you know we've also seen Porky's? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. And I kind of just wish the tone had been a little more balanced because I feel like they have like a a weird rape scene. I don't know if it's rape or assault. And they have the, like where the girl's sleeping and the guy, I don't know if it's Agnes or Billy who starts fingering her while she's sleeping. It's Billy because he has sex with his mom. He rapes his mom. Yeah. So I feel like the mix with all of that stuff and the campy stuff just doesn't work for me. Because mm-hmm. I feel like it's like really heavy subject matter on top of like, because I can go for all candy cane kills, but I can't like focus on candy cane kills when you're doing the other stuff too, especially when it's not like particularly artfully dealt with. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Cause it, it's like, 
especially at that phase of the movie, it's almost like going into zany bonkers territory, right? And then all of a sudden this like really serious thing happens, but it happens so quickly that it's almost easy to forget that like Billy's sister is also his like daughter because incest. And like, I don't even really think about that until they're like, oh wait, look, like I think they just wanted a disfigured monster. So they added in that line, but then you're like, why do it? Just have her be a weird sister. (laughs) Yeah. I also like- I'm in the Edgar Allan Poe camp for incest. I think when families have incest, the house should fall down. Like Edgar Allan Poe, <laughs> the fall of the house of Usher, uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, uh, Hundred Years of Solitude. The house collapses because of the incest. Um, I'm less of the this movie, and this is a spoiler for Barbarian. If you all haven't seen Barbarian, anyone listening, I guess she is the Barbarian. And Barbarian is also just like has super incest strength. Which I just, I, I like Barbarian a lot. I don't know where this weird incest strength story came from. Um, It's in Black Christmas (laughs) next season. (laughs) Incest Incest strength strength. (laughs) coming soon. (laughs) Um, It is a thing, though. It is a thing in horror. I I just, I'm thinking about it now. A lot of people do that, and it makes no sense because the more you would have incest the more your body would physically break down in your bloodline yeah yeah look at the british royal family <laughs> sorry liam if you're listening oh, oh no george, liam, fine. George, 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 george george if you're listening <laughs> uh, oh jesus i feel like my other main black christmas feelings i wish there was more close calls and near misses i feel like Mm. slashers and final destination movies really live by how good their their near misses are more than how their kills are at least for me and i know that's a a personal preference Mm. i like the two killers i hated all the backstory i feel like we just needed less of it and i feel like in a lot of ways this movie was trying to make up for what it thought were the flaws in the original black christmas and making the kills very explicit and making the black the the backstory very explicit i just that seems weird to me yeah because that's like what worked about the film but yeah yeah it's funny too that you mentioned final destination because the director glenn morgan is the screenwriter for the first final destination movie and it's also a yes there's there's a moment in the the film where for a second i was like who's Kristen cloak because i was like wait She's like too young to have been in like the original Black Christmas, but it, like threw me for a loop because they just had this moment. She's in Final Destination 2 and she's also married to Glenn Morgan for context, but there's this moment when she arrives and she has this like hair flip of an entrance. And I was like, am I supposed to know who she is? And I was like, I think <laughs> the director just did that because the director was like, here's my hot wife. Also go see Final Destination 2. <laughs> but it threw me for a loop. I like kept like Googling. I was like, this has to be a reference to something. And it's like, nope, it's just hot wife. <laughs> The, also uh, a good actor also a good actor i don't want to uh, detract that him. hair flip though excellent hair flip i was hair flip. Mm-mm. i was like game over i know my favorite person in this film i know i didn't know that's his wife though okay yeah, i only knew because i was like this has to mean something and that's what it means <laughs> the inspiration for billy was something uh um like ed kemper oh oh okay so it adds a little to it, but, you know, not much. Did Ed Kemper have a liver thing where he was yellow? Or was it just the the killing? The killings. The... I don't know okay. if he had um, jaundice. I don't think so. I assume that's what it also looked like Billy had was 
you know, yeah. condition, jaundice. That's why it was yellow and the eyes and all that. Yeah. yeah. I wonder if that's why they made it so like more sexual. Because was Ed Kemper, the serial killer that would like have sex with like parts of the corpses after. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, in that case, could have just gone deranged and not have sex with their mom and just have sex with like, I don't know, a mouth that's off someone's body. If you want to be that weird, but they didn't go that weird. Could have gone full midnight movie. (laughs) (laughs) You guys missed your chance. I know. I guess I have to watch the sadness again. (laughs) (laughs) Goodness. goodness. I like, I I did like this. I had a lot more fun than I thought I would. Mm -hmm. I love i love everyone in the cast i do think Lacey's character got killed off much too soon because i think she was the one who like understood the assignment like she knew that it was a bit more campy than serious mm-hmm. uh, and so whenever she was on screen she would just <laughs> so delightful where she was just like i'm gonna butcher the line but there's one line where she's just like i wish i could like have face to face my sister and i'll like cut her head off with like an axe or something <laughs> like what uh but it works it really works when she's delivering it i think she was way more interesting than our film's final girls. My only big thing of just being like, eh, the center character, which I feel bad saying about because she's so good on Arrow and on Legends of Tomorrow. But in this film, I was just like, eh, you can die. I'm fine. No, I would totally agree with that. I think uh, Lacey Chabert, like her line, like you said, her line delivery was just exactly what the movie needed (laughs) and she added so much humor and she had all this presence and so once they killed her off i felt like the the movie kind of well it came down yeah um, from where i was at i was like oh my god this is gonna be oh damn it and honestly it's interesting that she um her death was not as like gory but i felt that i have to say that shot like when she gets the um what are the 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 garden rake or whatever like oh yeah the rake oh, yeah. her head I, like i was like ooh, that's sad like that yeah. was that was a good yeah like that was a good scene but i was just like you maybe could have done that like halfway further into the movie i don't know it was to me that that i was i just remember being in theater seeing that and go son of a bitch <laughs> i was so mad so mad but then we get the hair flip later. That brings it back for us because we were missing, yeah. we we're missing a true queen, and then one had to arrive to fill this. Oh, <laughs> when one supreme dies, another rises. <laughs> this is the way. <laughs> okay, I do have to ask: Do you have you all ever watched the trailers for this film? No. Should we pause and watch it? And then well, I, I'm just going to let you know, you should later actually watch it because something that's, I I always hate when films do this, but they filmed all these extra scenes that don't either end up even making it to the um end or um deleted scenes, but there is a death that you can see is about to happen. And I think it's actually to Lacey Chabert's character, which was kind of cool where she was being dragged by Christmas lights and the Christmas Whoa. lights had been caught up in like a, like a chipper or something. And it was like pulling her in. Uh, that sounds But rad. it's never in the movie. And oh, so every time I watch what? the trailer, I'm like, Y'all, this could have been cool. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the meat grinders. We uh, spoiled it for Halloween ends. We got Michael in one. We had <gasps> the slasher meat grinder from um, Flesh and Blood. 
Yeah. Or the one yeah. before that. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Then we had Slasher uh, Flesh and Blood with the meat grinder. More meat grinders. I like. Absolutely. I was like, you guys, and it looked cool because obviously it's outside. You've got the white snow, but then you've got just the Christmas lights as the the setting, like or the lighting. Oh, it's like <laughs> I. I mean, that's honestly what sold me on wanting to see the film when it was coming mm. out. So yeah, I was pissed. I mean, we do get. <laughs> I can't even say this without like laughing because I'm both uncomfortable and horrified by it. But it's also really funny when Billy uses the Christmas cookie cutouts to somehow oh. like extract flesh from his mom's body. They're like magically razor sharp. And then he cooks parts of her like butt and eats it. And it's like zooms in on like his jawline. He's just gnashing and you can see like sinew and you're like, oh, God. But also it's really funny. <laughs> So we got that. Oh, yeah. We got a little bit of holiday like gore in there. Yeah. <laughs> and an eyeball on a Christmas tree. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <sighs> what a film. Zutaka, while we were chatting, you mentioned you watched this two times a year. At least. One time yes. at Christmas, right? When's the <laughs> other course. time? Um, Is normally... it just when you crave it? Or do you have like <laughs> a, another set time? I always watch it during the Halloween season, spooky season. So it's kind of, yeah, it's always at least within the month of October, Christmas, and then probably like around, I don't know, say maybe Easter or so. No, no big reason of why. It's just like, all right, I'm ready to see it again. It's, I just, it's so campy for me and it's just, it's a quick watch. So it's always fun to um, go back and watch something like that. This one's when I knew I was queer and I was just like, oh, my God, I'm living my fantasy. So, yes, that's why this one means more. (laughs) I had one other question for y'all. This one feels more like a callback to Silent Night, Deadly Night than Black Christmas to me. Y'all feel the same way or differently? I hadn't thought that until you said that. And I actually think that's like 100 percent spot on. Like if they just leaned to this being more of Silent Night, Deadly Night vibe again, more gore. Uh, more Christmas light kills into meat grinders. I think it would have like sold it more for me. I think it was weirdly on the line sometimes where it was too serious and then it would be very, very camp and bonkers. Yeah, I guess I could kind of see that. And at times, I mean, it's very brief, but him walking out in like the Santa suit. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. and okay. I mean, I could kind of see that. All right. Maybe, 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 maybe. Well, okay, there's the incest. But other than that, it's not really has that like sexual tone that Silent Night, Deadly Night had. That's true. Yeah, they have to amp it up a lot. Yeah. But I could see it. She looked really good. Are we ready to chat about 2019's Black Christmas? Do we have to? (laughs) How dare you? Uh, Yeah, I am not a a huge fan of this film, but I think that there's some things about it that are totally not the filmmaker's fault. But before we get into that, quick synopsis. So Black Christmas 2019 is all about the sorority sisters at uh, Hawthorne university they're gathering for some holiday cheer but soon a mass figure starts picking them off one by one 
as they very audibly and loudly question if misogyny can ever really die, as misogyny is the film's real killer, starring uh, Imogen Poots as Riley and Elise Shanning as Chris. And before we chat about the film, I wanted to talk to you about its really not great production process. And to do that, I'm going to have to throw some shade at Jason Bloom. So here goes me ever having a Bloom House product to talk about again in the future. (laughs) Uh, But everything I'm saying is fact and true. So there's that. So in 2018, uh, a lot of horror critics know this already. Mm -hmm. For those who don't, there's a time where he said, and I quote, there are not a lot of female directors, period, and even less who are inclined to do horror. I'm a massive admirer of the Baba Duke director, Jennifer Kent. I've offered her every movie we've had available. She's turning me down every time. So that blew up for obvious reasons. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> it was a whole thing. Like we all kind of moved on since then. He issued a public apology. He said he would do better. Shortly after that whole scenario went down, he uh, obtained the rights to the Black Christmas franchise. And approached Sophia Tackle to direct it. She said, sure. And then uh, Tackle brought on April Wolf to be the screenwriter. And they wanted to make a Black Christmas movie that was R-rated. And that spun out of, like, the Brett Kavanaugh trials. Because this was going on at the same time. So they wanted to, like, expose, like, the toxic elements of fraternities. And, like, rape on college campuses. And explore all these, like, deep themes. But uh, this is where Jason Bloom messes stuff up. (laughs) So my least favorite thing about him, although he does a lot of inclusivity and horror and his Bloomhouse productions is responsible for some of the films I absolutely love, uh, like Bingo Hell, which I know Yutaka loves. He also says a lot of contradictory things like under, under my skin, particularly. In this one interview with Forbes, he mentions how he doesn't let data decide his creative decisions when he makes a decision he wants to like comfort like gut when asked why he doesn't do things like make a sequel to freaky he'll say like that will never happen because financially it didn't do well i'm sorry so that will never happen so he does things like this all the time where he'll say like oh i just make it from my heart and my gut but then when he's asked like well where's like the next happy death day film he'd be like well it didn't perform well so we'll we'll think about it and it's like you just admit that you are a producer and you make decisions based on data and sometimes data's wrong <laughs> sometimes mm-hmm. there's there's demand for stuff that we want to see if you want to have more queer horror then you know back more queer horror films whether or not they're going to be successful Bloomhouse is so big as a production company they're not really independent anymore and they can afford to take some some swings yes. in my opinion yeah. so as i mentioned like wolf and tackle wanted to make this film r-rated but they screened it in front of audiences and the production studios were like, eh, we don't think it's going to perform well with mature audience. Can you make it more PG-13? So a bunch of stuff got cut. I think, honestly, that's a big part of the reason why the tone feels poppy, in my opinion, because I think they were making it for a, a pre-teen, like early teen audience because uh... they were told to. Oh, and it gets worse from here. So this one is super rushed production time. So for context, the movie was announced in June 2019. Filming for Black Christmas wrapped in July. So that's about a month. And then it was pushed out to be released in time for the Christmas season in December. So it's not a lot of time to make a film. Like for an independent film, that's a good chunk of time. Uh, But for a film with this had a budget of about $6 million, like that's a lot, especially since they filmed in New Zealand. Um, That's like a lot of rush to it. And I honestly think it shows in the quality of the film that got out of it. Like I think one big thing that is a note really noticeable and kind of, and I think embarrassing for uh, 
for Bloomhouse to not admit is that like the editing is super rough on the film and you can tell it feels rushed. Like there's just one scene in particular where all the girls are uh, gathered and they're killing one of the mass figures in the house. And then this campus security guard comes to the door and all of a sudden they're terrified. It's like, oh crap, they're going to think we're murderers. And right behind the campus security guy is another cloaked figure and they all scream. And then immediately the film cuts and it's just Riley and Chris in a room talking. And we have no idea what happened to that other killer. Like what happened? There's another time in the in the movie where Chris is, is saying like, suck my, and she drops this big glass thing on the ground and we never get to actually hear what the sentence was. Like, was she going to say, like, something like, suck my pussy? Was she going to, like, actually, like, uh, co-op some term, like, that these frat rapey boys are throwing at her? We don't know. Like, things get cut. And I feel like you can tell. And it makes me feel so bad that people are so harsh over this song. Because I think a lot of it has to do with production stuff. For mm -hmm. context... Although Jason Bloom, you know, said like, I want to do better. I want to get more women directors in horror. I, I'm really proud that we have like female-centric horror. For context, this movie was under production the same time The Invisible Man was in production. The Invisible Man is written and directed by a white Australian dude named Lee Winnell, who we all now know because he's worked with James Wan a whole bunch. They're really tight. Yeah. He worked on Insidious. This film got $8 million for budget in comparison. And also their production schedule went from July 2019 to September 2019. So they clearly put in more time and literally more money into The Miserable Man, which is a film in a lot of ways covering the same topics of misogyny and, you know, gaslighting. But mm -hmm. they invested more energy into a male-led property covering this, like, hard to talk about subject matter. And they pushed out a film that's really honestly a hard film to make about like not just like i think the simplified version of like misogyny is bad obviously we know that but what they were trying to get at was like how are the ways we fight it bad you know like what is effective what works is there room to even talk about like internalized misogyny is there room which they, they kind of do is there room to like talk about like how some men are are and can be feminist and what that means and that uncomfortable nature of even being like you can be a feminist and a man, but also like make me uncomfortable because of what men do. Like the, those nuances, it's all lost. And I think it's all because of the rating, the chopped budget as far as time and attention goes. So I think that's important just to like front load this movie topic with that. Uh, I'll end it before we start talking about the actual film and our thoughts uh, with another quote from Jason Bloom. Uh, <laughs> he was asked about Black Christmas in an interview with Bloody Disgusting, and he laughed about it and said, you know, you learn more from movies that don't work than from movies that do. We learned our company is not built to rush. You can't do no money and fast. You got to do no money and no release date. To back into a release date with a low budget is a recipe for disaster. So he basically admits that he pushed it out just in time for the Christmas season. That was a bad thing to do. It's also like important to admit that like the movie performed horribly, which makes production companies less likely to like invest and trust that women created horror is going to sell. It's like a literally a self-fulfilling prophecy. So hate that. And he also has a quote that I'm just going to paraphrase so I don't take up too much time ranting about this. But he basically said that after this film was made, there wouldn't be another big budget holiday horror Christmas movie for another five years. Uh, and so this came out in 2019. So I just want to say we have two years to prove Jason Bloom wrong. I would like a bloody Christmas movie sometime soon in the big theater. I think we're getting two this year. Well, okay. We're getting hey. one this year um, because we have... 
bloody Christmas or Christmas, bloody Christmas, but that's yeah. screaming. Yeah. But then we also have that new um, violent night with the zaddy. Yes. Um, David Harbour. <laughs> and I'm so excited. Oh, so yeah. I have a feeling that one's going to be a hit. Um, yeah. So we could. Yeah. Um, yeah, people love David Harbour. So I think so. I hope so. I mean, Jason, like I love Blumhouse. I don't like Jason Blum. Sorry. But he does make some he makes some statements and Mm -hmm. like he's he talks about wanting to do better. And afterwards, you see that like a lot of when they do the welcome to the Blumhouse or all the the streaming, it is typically female directors. And I'm happy. But on the other side, I'm like, why not? Like, where is it where they get their big theatrical? Like, it's interesting. You're making steps, but you're you're not. Yeah, like I think I've, I thought a lot about the Welcome to Bloom House idea because I think it's fascinating and I think it shows like, oh, they're investing in, you know, not necessarily younger as an age, but like younger in the sense of like material out there, like younger fil- like filmmakers to get their work out there. But you're putting, you're pigeonholing them into like, oh, we can only do like, t- it's like the TV movie setup. We're like, yep. Hallmark, I honestly, I, I stand Hallmark so hard because they have so many women creating like, television movies so, like so many like first time directors getting their shot in hallmark because they're more open to it uh however like then they get pigeonholed and it's hard to get a theatrical release because you're known for knowing one format format but not another so like mm-hmm. where is all these halloween movies with like women on the helm like what's going on what is going on yeah i mean i like that he's giving people the opportunity to work in the welcome to blumhouse but i totally agree like these people could direct movies for theatrical release too you know mm-hmm. that's where the money is budget yeah that's really oh, that's really frustrating but i don't want him to take up any more time for the story but i think that it's just so ironic that like a film about like listening to women believing women and uplifting women especially if you're a man and want to like know how to do better like it's just so ironic and hysterical and like the dark way to me that this film was so messed up so badly by a white ceo in power <laughs> And I was like, oh, that I feel like it's important. It's just important to mention because I think a lot of people like we joke about like, oh, do we have to cover this? But I think it's an important lesson to learn from and to talk about. So we remember that like filmmaking has a lot to do with who finances it and who makes these big creative decisions on behalf of the people trying to make a movie. I had a question for you based on yeah. the things you're saying. Was there an R-rated cut made that was edited into a PG-13 cut or an R-rated script that was edited to a PG-13 script? An R-rated film. There was an R-rated script and they screened oh. the film to audiences and they didn't think it tested well. So then they had to redo the script. And I think I think what they probably did is they probably cut out a lot of shots so that yeah. I think that's where the rough editing oh. is showing. If I'm being honest, I think that's what happened and they didn't have enough time because they already... It was only like a month of time and they had to rush to marketing and and to get like distribution set up that I don't think they had enough time to make it a smooth cut. It's like what I think happened. Yeah. And it feels very uneven with like, because I feel like there's adult material in there, but it's like mm-hmm. very, it's it's sprinkled in a really weird, not like intentional way. Yeah. Yeah. I think they just did their best to pull back certain things, but that you can only pull back so much without them losing the story, which is kind of why I think it feels a little unhinged, but Speaking of the story, how do we feel about the friendships in this movie? I did not feel like as a sorority house that they were really a, a like a cohesive, like they did not feel like sorority sisters. 
Yeah. yeah. They just, I, I, it was very odd. Like, uh, and I'll reference, um, like, uh, even though you still got to see him for a little bit, but I kind of get it. Like, even Happy Death Day, they seem mm. to still have better cohes- cohesion than what I saw in this. I was not a fan of this film, but I, I don't, I just feel like the characters all lacked chemistry with each other, which just yeah. came it, like in a sorority house I would feel like you would you'd have that especially considering the previous two did it very well yeah and I think the one thing that got me too is that like in no like in no universe does everyone get along and I think mm-hmm. especially in films like I think a film that does really well is like house and sorority row right where you know that like deep down they love each other and respect each other but there's going to be one person that pisses you the fuck off that's always Mm -hmm. saying or someone that's always saying dumb shit and you're like jesus why did you say that now we're in this situation (laughs) like there's there's those just natural things that pop up when you live together with someone absolutely and i I just feel like everyone's just like super bestie friends it struck me more as like they wanted it to be like look women supporting like women and women liking women so hard that I didn't believe it. I was like, no one's arguing in this household. There's like four bathrooms in this whole house. No one's arguing. Yeah, it kind of fell flat because of that. I totally agree. Because Black Christmas, the original, I think, had a really good moment where uh, Margot Kidder's character mm. hates one of the other characters. And like the two of them clash. It's Claire. Uh, Margot Kidder and Claire just clash. Yeah. And I feel like that made me believe this is a real house where people live in a real sorority. Yeah. In a way where I don't think Black Christmas 2019 ever really convinced me this was a real group of people living in a real college world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it doesn't age well either. Because one big, big thing that I found glaring on this rewatch was like Riley and Chris have a very interesting relationship in the sense where Chris is like shown to us as being this empowering activist who wants to, you know, lift up every woman and Riley is just like, I don't know if I can do that. And there's just like this weird exchange where Riley basically says like, I'm not like you, Chris, I can't do this. And it just feels so racially blind, like that Riley would say something like, oh, I can't be strong like you. And that Chris, if they know each other as well as the film is suggesting they do, they live together, if they've like taken classes together, if they're as like, quote unquote, woke as they are at this time that like a lot of people in college love to talk about it when they are right it's like you get excited to learn something new you want to be politically correct like i can't imagine them not talking about the fact that like chris is black and riley is white like even in one dialogue just being like giving her a look of just being like hold on you didn't just say that and riley being like shit i'm sorry i'm just going through some shit that was insensitive you know like that for me i was just like it doesn't it doesn't work you can't do it you can't have a film about feminism and not talk about race at, at, or at least acknowledge it you know mm-hmm mm-hmm <sighs> I also thought there was like too many characters. I think maybe that was part of the problem. So I was really curious, like if you had to cut out some characters, who would you cut? Or like who would be the characters that you'd rather just see? Because I frankly had trouble remembering them all, oh, which is harsh. Yeah. As harsh. I'm sorry. I feel like I'm coming in hard. <laughs> no, because I don't remember many. Of them. Yeah. Right? Like the only one I remember is honestly um, Chris. And I think because they give her some really badass moments. Yeah, they do. But other than that, like, I, I, I don't know. I, I agree with there were too many characters on screen, but also there was not enough death. Honestly, this feels more like an action film 
yeah. at times mm. than it does a horror film. If there were that many characters on screen, uh, I was like, let's see some mass death. I, I don't know. It was I can't remember many of the characters because I feel that they were all unmemorable, which is yeah. sad, but yeah. it's true. We were talking about it in the, the Twitter chat. And I think one of the questions I posed to y'all, like when you watch the movie, tell me what anyone's major is. No idea. In this film. It's just like the characters don't feel very well developed, which yeah. I think I think we're saying the same critique, Cass, where yeah. there's too many characters because they're all flat. It's like they could either be developed and not uh, be flat or they could be cut entirely and combined to, to more than one person. But I think they don't want to cut them because they wanted to have kills. And they wanted to kill people who they did not have an emotional investment in. I also think it was very, it just kind of screams, it was like optics wise, like from the marketing side of things. Because if you look at the Black Christmas poster, it it very much seems like it's aware that it's like, look, we have like different ethnicities, different um, like body shapes and sizes. We are all women, you know, I feel like they were going for that. So I feel like maybe that's why they wanted to include as much representation as I could on screen, which is important. But then I don't think they really did anything with the character. So then it's like, don't do it if you're not going to do it. (laughs) It was like, I remember that poster, to be honest. And it's funny because I'm like, I don't remember half those characters. It's like it was set dressing. That's yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the film itself is about mainly it's about well a murderous cult that's secretly operating at Hawthorne but also Riley dealing with her sexual assault and I really hate how the film handles it like I forgot how hard I cringe when they do like that Mean Girls-esque like dance routine number in front of her abuser at a frat party and the fact that her friends were just like you need to do this Riley and it's like what how who dare you like who are you (laughs) it is not great it's it's not great and i i think the dialogue around it is so strange like i read i didn't say this but another reviewer i like i saw online said it and i was like that's a great way to phrase it and it was like they treat her sexual assault as if it was a bad breakup which is a great way of explaining that it's like it comes up just casually mm-hmm. in the kitchen they're like in a public bookstore and like a boy looks at her and they're just like it's almost it's almost as if they're like do you want to talk about your rape now and it's like jesus like take a step back that's not how i'm not buying this is how this conversation would go and it's only been i think she says about nine months to a year since it happened so like that's still like very fresh i don't think she would be able to just be gabbing about it openly and not have to like take some time away to be like hold on i need a second this i wasn't expecting this i gotta gotta breathe here do we have any other feelings about how they handled that (laughs) it just wasn't good (laughs) you're right it was not good the friends especially felt just like very tone deaf yeah very uh unable to read how riley would be feeling the way they talked about it yeah yeah they feel very oblivious to riley's feelings uh but this quest to help her recovery is is a big part of the movie and eventually that and like the fact that random story sisters are dying around them leads them to discover that the murderous cult at the college uh and it turns out the reason why all of these like frat boys are killing people is that there's this old statue from hawthorne descended from nathaniel hawthorne and it contains a sludge that when you're exposed to it just makes you like hella misogynistic so the big climax of the film really yeah, it's Riley that does it. Of course it is. <laughs> he picks up the st- like the statue and smashes it. And I didn't like that. Uh, because for me, 
I thought it was an intriguing idea. Like I love murderous cults. I think they're very fun to use in horror movies as a concept, but I didn't like that that statue is the reason why people are doing this because then I feel as if, if you follow that logically, it excuses the the guys in this film from facing any accountability because it was something else that was responsible for their poor actions, not themselves. It's like they are possessed by like the patriarchy, but like at their root, they're like fine. It's like, well, that's not how patriarchy works, actually. It's mm-hmm. deep-seated and you have to pull it out and it takes time and effort and discussions and you're going to mess up. And that's like not very pretty to have in a horror movie. So I don't know how quite else they could have done it with this statue setup. But I'm really curious to hear how you all feel about the statue sludge possession goo thing. I, uh... <laughs> Sorry, I took a breath. <laughs> I feel like I agree with you that it very much um, exonerates the boys from their crime. Mm. But I feel like the the frat boys who are like cartoonishly mustache twirling evil kind of people. Yeah. I think they also suffer from being just like very underdeveloped and very tone deaf. Because I feel like men do say things like um, she was asking for it. Uh-huh. But I think in 2019 the the rapiest guy you know would say that was wrong if you said that to him in a group with women in it and would know better than to say it yeah and i feel like it makes them this like cartoonish like straw man argument like look these bad guys we gotta get them but they don't feel like real people they feel like ideas walking in to say bad shit yes like i think like especially for a film that was made during uh, made around the times of the Brett Kavanaugh trial, frat boys would be aware of that yeah. going on, you know? So it's almost like you would have to imagine that like they would be even more sinister and insidious. Like you're saying, like they would conceal more. Yeah. They would talk a bigger game and be more PC. But like when it comes to their actions, we'd see a different side of them. And if you saw them like in a group with just each other, they mm-hmm. might say these things, but they're not going to go to the sorority sister who accused their their brother uh, fraternity brother of raping her and say like you were asking for it because you could get suspended from your college for saying shit like that like there's consequences and they know that and they're smart enough to avoid the consequences for the most part mm-hmm. unfortunately i mean they're all pieces of shit please mm-hmm. don't take this as like a a thumbs up to their actions because obviously it's not but no i was trying to i'm banging my head against the wall because i can't think of the name but like there's a there's a movie i saw recently that it did this really well and i i don't know yutaka do you remember seeing a movie recently where it was like someone was like a quote-unquote good guy but then it like he ended up like sexually assaulting someone in the movie what? wasn't that barbarian or, or no oh sorry oh Guys, maybe spoiler uh, uh well we already mentioned it like yeah, yeah. um where in that film the monster wasn't actually the monster yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. you're right mm-hmm. i was thinking of so justin long's character i think is exactly what we're talking about where like He's like, I'm like, I'm like the goodest boy in the world. But then when he gets drunk with his friend at the bar, he basically admits that he rapes her, but is like hand waving it away. And his friend, even his friend, you see the friend's face is like, bro, what? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and and I got to say, I, I came to that conclusion because I was speaking with um, another filmmaker and they pointed that out. And I was like, oh, my God, that's I was like, that's deep. And that's so true. But in this, uh, this whole, um, the sludge and the, I, I do love a good cult, but mm-hmm. when they added that weird paranormal or supernatural, I'm like, what? 
so that as you said in a sense like this is what's kind of excusing them to be like oh they could have been possessed i i was just like this is bizarre but if i am correct though didn't all of them burn though for the most part they they locked a man in right yes yeah at least they at least they got that but (laughs) yeah that that whole statue moment with that i go what oh fuck now that i think about it that's even weirder yutaka because if if it is a statue and they're supposed to be aware that these people were possessed and that's not them naturally then do they just be like okay we're just gonna murder them anyway just in case <laughs> like i i mean to be fair i would have i'm like sorry guys <laughs> sorry about it i'm locking this door i don't trust you all I because got places to be i feel like part of it was like pulling out what they already had naturally inside them and just mm-hmm. amplified it mm-hmm. because i don't think those guys were were good people because um the one i think uh, potential love interest you could see him fighting it like yeah. he could tell something and so I, I i felt that at least you could see that there were like good men did exist and he could like pull away from that whereas i feel like these frat boys though they gave into that and they're like mm-hmm. yeah but so to me i would be like lock that door y'all can burn and i'm okay with it i'll sleep good at night I mean, that would also be a fascinating other movie. Like if it was like, people are probably going to like hate me or saying this on Twitter, <laughs> but if they wanted to make the movie they were making, they, it would have been interesting to keep on the women filmmakers with this movie and just focus on the murderous cult of these dudes and, and zooming in on like the guys that resist and the guys that give into this possession and that part of it and like showing how they deal with women while this is happening. I think that would actually be harder to watch and probably a bit more serious but i think it would do a better job of getting at like how much of how much of internalized misogyny can you ever get out you know like how mm-hmm. can, can you ever like conquer it is there always gonna be something that's there yada yada i feel like that would have been a way more fascinating approach but it would have meant they would have have to cast less women or have less screen time with them mm-hmm. but to tell that story i think that's what they should have done um ironically enough <laughs> It kind of felt, I, I don't know, it just, it was interesting to see the, what they wanted to convey versus how it was being conveyed. It just, it didn't work. Yeah. Um, sadly, because I would have, I would have enjoyed um, a good film. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, the, but knowing some of the production, I didn't know that though. And that, that definitely adds to where I was like, because I, I do, when anytime somebody like mentions this film, I'm like, it's just, it's so, it's messy. It's, it's yeah. choppy. It's this. And now seeing that I'm like, oh, now yeah. kind of makes some sense. Now there's still other things, but it was like, that adds to part of my disdain for the film. Yeah. And it's like, I kind of wish somebody could, I know now it probably won't be touched for a while, at least this property, yeah. but I want them to like do it again. Like it's, this is a one, I, I will say this with Black Christmas as a franchise, um, I just think each movie is so specific and so different from the one that came before that I would love to see another Black Christmas movie, like directed by women, written by women, and seeing like how they how they would spin it. Oh, I would love that. I, I think that would be fabulous. But yeah, yeah I agree. We're not going to see that in a while. No, it's going to be like, because you know what? Oh, like a good, a good example. I think one that did it well. Uh, like to put a feminist lens even more on like a classic horror film is the Slumber Party Massacre remake. I thought that they did a really great job and they had a lot of like 
the quote unquote female gaze too, where they dress down the boys and actually had them be scared of the women in the film because they're like holy shit like strangers in my house with weapons like and that's how people would react if like someone came into your house with a weapon like they had all these little nice details of kind of balancing it gender roles wise um like imagine the same team making a black christmas movie but it's set at a fraternity and the killer are like sorority sisters like wouldn't that be fantastic <laughs> yeah oh uh, my god give that to me as long as <laughs> oh my gosh yes <laughs> but I loved the remake of the Slumber Party. They did such a fabulous job on that film. So yes. I would, I would support that. This is like a tiny detail that just annoys yeah. me in, in a lot of movies. So Scream makes all these references, right? Like mm-hmm. they're walking down the road, and Tatum says, "This is like the town that sundown, uh, the town that dreaded sundown." So it's like a character in the movie referencing a similar film, and it works. So the, the address of their house was 74 Elm Street. The 74, I don't mind. It's a reference to the original Black Christmas. Nightmare on Elm Street has nothing to do with this movie. Yeah. Like, stop winking to Wes Craven and George Romero and John Carpenter and everything. They don't all need to be named John, George, and Wes all the time. <laughs> Pick something from real life, please. Because yeah. like the point of an homage is like, wink at a thing you're referencing, uh-huh. not just like, a zombie movie where a character's named Carpenter. Like John Carpenter didn't even do a zombie movie, I'm pretty sure. Like, stop it. Stop it. These references. Oh. You're not making anything connected. He kind of did. He did? Kind they of. Um, uh, what is it? Ghost of Mars? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah I have seen that one. Oh, it is an adventure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mars, cannibals that are yeah. turned into like a Mad Max universe. <laughs> My my double feature for today is Catwoman and <laughs> Ghost of Mars. <laughs> that sounds like a fantastic time. Uh, yes. Do do either of you have any more thoughts on this Black Christmas movie? I have one other thought. I think because the original is consistently praised for having or being a feminist film, I think it's interesting to look back. And I think the thing it did really well was that it never intended, at least according to the uh, the audio commentary by Bob Clark to be a feminist movie Mm. it intended to have fully developed characters that felt like real people and i think that that's like a very good template um for why this movie didn't work Mm because the characters don't feel fully developed they don't feel like real Mm. people that's true too yeah i think that's a great point and i think the focusing on the characters especially for ideas like if you want to address feminism or racism Mm -hmm. get out has very well developed characters i could tell you Lots of things about Chris. I could tell you, I remember Chris's name. I don't know some of my own family members' names some days, you know? And I'm remembering this guy from this movie I've watched repeatedly because it's just such so well-developed. Yutaka, any last thoughts on Black Christmas 19? No. What was your favorite of our our three Black Christmas movies? Oh, that's hard. I think think I'm going to stick with the original. I do love the experience I had while watching 2006 Black Christmas, but I know that I will still watch 1974's Black Christmas every year. I think for for me, for a rewatchability standpoint, it would be the um, 2006, but I hold, I would say, 1974 to a higher regard because Mm -hmm. it obviously, it has more of a social impact. Like there's, you know, that's a, a solid film. It doesn't need the camp factor. It doesn't need all this... I just love all of that that 2006 has, but I can recognize that 
74 is the superior of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really like 74. I'm middle of the road on 2006 and did not like 19. So the well, last year, and we've had a Texas Chainsaw Massacre requel, a Scream requel, the end of David Gordon Green's Halloween trilogy, which is also a requel, a Hellraiser remake, and we've got Friday the 13th prequel from Brian Fuller on the way, which I'm very excited for. So obviously studios are doing this because the name of the film guarantees a cash return, right? Mm-hmm. But what are you guys as fans and journalists looking for in a remake or a requel? What makes one good or bad for you? I'm excited for Noah Hawley's Alien series. Mm. Um, I miss that franchise. It's, it is, you know, I mean, Alien was is my favorite um, horror film of all time. And I would love to see us go back to that universe. Mm. Um, and the idea of getting, I think, I don't know how many episodes it's going to be. I'm excited to that we get all of that because I see how well Chucky's doing. And I would hope mm. that we could get something similar in terms of style and substance with the new Alien series. So that's what I'm really looking forward to. But the Friday the 13th prequel from Brian Fuller. Mm-hmm. Mm, I know he's going to give us everything we want. Yeah, I'm uh, excited to hear more about that, that property because I'm not a huge Friday the 13th fan. Uh, Jason's fine. I would rather Pam Voorhees any day, but I think I might actually get more Pam Voorhees. So <laughs> I'm like, holy yes. crap, I've been asking for it for like ever since we started this podcast. <laughs> so yeah, that one I'm really excited about. And I also think it just in general, I tend to value when like a requel or a sequel or a remake, whatever, when it is made with an original vision for sure. And then when it takes into the context, the time that it's being made. I know Ryan's about to ask this in a second, Mm -hmm. but most of the reasons why I like Suspiria in 1978's Invasion of the Body Snatchers, I think those are two films that are great examples about doing that. Like 2018 Suspiria gave us original story. Uh, Maybe it ran a little bit too long, but it did something new and different and uh, added and expanded its mythos and its queerness, of of course. uh, there was supposed to be a queer sex scene that got cut from Suspiria, which I'm still mad about, but <laughs> it's okay. Uh, in 1978's Invasion of the Body Snatchers, I think it was really great at like bringing in like Reaganomics and like understanding like the context of the time it was coming out in, how like culture was becoming very consumer focused and product focused. And there was a really real fear of like getting trapped in, into this like work by die kind of cycle that was like um emerging at the time so i think that's a great example where like yeah and like the reason why i think 1974 is black christmas works and with how it handles roe versus wade is because it talks about something that people would be talking about at the time that it was coming out so i think that's really what does it for me yeah i feel like i agree i want original ideas and i feel like i don't want the plot remade but i want the tone i feel this way i'm sorry you talked about the 2006 black christmas and also the texas the new texas chainsaw massacre where i feel like the tone was just kind of all wrong for the movies they're remaking Mm, Um, that's fair which leads me to my uh another question i had from y'all is it fair to judge a remake based on the original it's one of the things I've heard people talking about online that I just kind of find fascinating. I don't think so because and I look at that the same way as can a sequel um, be better than the original? You know, oh, yeah. I, I don't think it's fair to base it on the so much on the original because 
you could still have a remake and it be just a solid, incredible film that is just like, just could be just story, acting, looks, effect, all this. And you're still going to have those people out there. Oh, it's still not the original. But, you know, one of the things that we, we want to see in a remake is even if it's just a name and it has some little semblance, resemblance, I'm happy if you give me something new and you're pushing some type of boundary or you're there to like make a solid film. I don't want to, I don't like to go into something and just be like, well, it's a remake, so it's going to suck. I, yeah. I just, I don't get that mindset. And I, I think there are a lot of people out there like, I hope it's, well, maybe not some filmmakers, but I could see them be like, oh, if somebody does remake it, I'm really excited because I can't wait to see what they bring to the table and how they transform my idea. I really love what you said, Yutaka, about the idea of putting the film first and the franchise second. Like, just make a good film. And yeah, obviously, I know it's connected to this larger universe, but just make a good story first. Like, I think that's the reason why Prey did so good because they're like, mm-hmm. yeah, we're gonna bring we're gonna bring in the Predator. He's gonna be here, but it's a it's its own movie first, and it can stand on its own two feet. And we don't have to be like having Red String being like, now this has come before or after this one, and then like wait, is this like a shot for shot, like redo of what we already saw? Did they like change something just a bit that I'm supposed to catch? Oh no, it's just the same shot. Okay. Uh, Like I think sometimes people work really hard to please horror fans to get enough of like the original or whatever into the film. And I just feel like you don't have to do that. Just let it go. Prey is a wonderful example. Yes. That movie was, that is a, I'm, I'm happy it did really well on Hulu, but my God, that deserved theatrical because that was, wow. I have one regret leaving Prey off my list of uh, sequels, requels, and prequels and remakes because it was excellent. Um, One of the best films of this year. Mm -hmm. But I would say to the original question, I think it's fair to judge the film based on the old films if only because I'm being asked to pay for it because it has the same name. Mm, that's a good point. Okay. Um, yeah, I'll I'll agree to some of that. I feel that no matter what, though, you're still going to be at, you're still going to be let down, though, because it's not the original. Even that's if true. it's a great film, you're still going to be comparing or breaking it down because... I, I get it and I re- I respect that. I just, I feel like for me, if I, I looked at it that way, I feel I would always walk away still kind of beating down what I just watched mm-hmm. because it wasn't the original. And not saying you do that, but I just know me as a person, I could see myself with that. That's the mentality I would have. So that's why I do my best not to. Absolutely. Oh, that's a good point. I want to know y'all's favorite remakes of all time and your favorite recent remakes. Ooh, if we're going to do recent remakes, um, it's not like complete, like, I don't know how recent we're going, but I will say I'm going to stick with the Christmas theme. They did a remake of Silent Night, Deadly Night, and they just called it Silent Night. Um, So it was more just kind of the name. And the reason you could tell it was also partially um, a remake is one of the kill scenes is pretty much almost the same. But it's actually really good. It's got Jamie King, Malcolm McDowell. It's on Shudder. It's more gruesome and it's more 
Well, you get a wood chipper. I'm just throwing yes. that out there. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. So um, I, I really, I, I enjoyed that. It, it goes for a darker, a darker tone and, there are some sexual sequences, but not to the extent of what the original had. But that's a recent remake, and I plan to watch it because I actually do enjoy that. Um, mm. Just because it's so... I love gore, y'all. Mm. Um, and Jamie King's great in remakes. Now, favorite remake of all time? That's hard because uh, I jump... I, I, there are so many remakes that I really love. But I'm, I would also have to agree with the fly though on here because mm. I, I see that and that is i mean my god you got jeff goldblum gina j oh yeah david cronenberg it's it's so good the the effects like it is oh and it's gut-wrenching at the end too mm-hmm. yeah the scene where his fingernail falls off in the bathroom Ugh. so good <laughs> It inspired yes. one of my first published horror stories. So I'm just like always in love with and grateful to that movie. Um, I wish we had like a cowbell or an air horn. This is the first time for a few long horror hangover listeners. The first time I wrote a question and actually came up with an answer <laughs> before showtime. I We're so proud. We're so proud of Ryan. This is our. This is his moment. Just like <laughs> let it breathe. <laughs> it's gonna be a one-time thing probably <laughs> but as you heard from from Yutaka, one of mine that's in the notes i love the fly and i love the thing and just in terms of all-time remakes i think those two 80s sci-fi classic sci-fi horror so well done mm-hmm. favorite recent remake i think Cass and i are in agreement on this one satan slaves by so joko anwar mm-hmm. my first exposure to him i think a lot of people's first exposure to him and it's just a phenomenal movie. Yeah. And the uh, if you are Shudder watchers listening, he just came out with Satan Slaves Communion, which is the sequel. I am so excited to watch it. I haven't watched it yet just because I fell behind in my Halloween movie watching because so much came out this season to cover. Yes. Uh, but I'm very excited to yeah. see it. Yeah. The the horror crowd. We're, we are feasting this year. It is. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean just i we are just being fed there's so much and there's still so much to come out i know i still uh-huh. haven't watched interview with the vampire i'm still um, actively watching chucky and screaming with glee every week like there's so much good stuff out there it's so so exciting this was not the right year to have a child <laughs> <laughs> i haven't seen anything <laughs> i'm so sorry right i've seen so much blood and so much poop <laughs> um, but not, so not you saw film. terrifier too <laughs> i want to so badly <laughs> um well and you know we gotta gonna give you guys also a shout out because i'm really excited for you all as well a wounded fawn <gasps> yeah. yes we'll be talking with josh rubin soon I'll be our first ever interview on the pod, which is exciting. Something we've been wanting to do for a while and we just needed more time to do so. So can't Second wait. Interview. Oh, kudos to that entire team. But I also interviewed Ryan C. Bradley on our own podcast. <laughs> oh, God. What's the post people do like that? Yeah. Uh, he's doing the cute little like... Uh, hand under pose. chin pose. Hand under chin pose. Yes, I'm sorry. I don't know what that's called. <laughs> Oops. I'm a great host. I promise sometimes. 
You're the best. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you're also going to be talking to Josh Rubin on the Horror Hour 2 you talk about, which I'm excited about. I love getting to hear when other people interview someone I've interviewed because they always come up with good questions to ask. So mm-hmm. I'm excited to hear. Do you have any other clothing? Clo- uh, God, I can't talk. I'm going to have to edit so much shit out. <laughs> <laughs> Merry fucking Christmas. Okay. Uh, do we have any final thoughts on Black Christmas? Just, I love holiday horror. Uh, mm-hmm. I wish there was a killer Santa Claus. That is one <laughs> knock on all of these, but the 2006 more Santa murders, but mm-hmm. good stuff. Wait, can I ask a question now that I'm thinking about it? Because it's yeah. real off the cuff. <laughs> What's okay. a holiday horror movie you all are going to watch this year? That's not any of these. Not any of these. I will be re-watching Silent Night, Deadly Night, as I do every year, because I love it. I'll probably also be watching the the new Joe Bagos um, one. And uh, I missed the advent calendar on Shudder last year. Uh, I, I had to wait <laughs> a year for the season to come back around. But yeah, so I'll be watching a couple of those. I haven't yet watched Black Friday starring our man Devon Sawa and uh, Bruce Campbell. It's uh, just a movie about Black Friday and how people are insane around that time and trample people. And they're just fighting like hordes of customers. And I really want to see it. It came out uh, like six months ago, I think. Yeah, it's a fun one. Um, Like that, you should check out Jeffrey X. Martin's short story collection, Black Friday. Which oh. has a very good, the title story is a very good uh, Black Friday story. Oh, cool. Ooh. I'll check it out. Yeah, it'll probably be that one. And then Krampus, which I do every year because my spouse is really big on on Christmas stuff. So it's the one time of year where I can be like, mm, Christmas horror. So I, please send all the Christmas horror wrecks my way. That's my own way of sneaking more horror. <laughs> I will then tell you, like, I watch this now yearly as well, um, ever since I saw it, because I have a sick, twisted humor, (laughs) and I love that um, it was written by a gay man, and it's called Better Watch Out. (gasps) Oh, I have seen one. That one's really good. That's the Home Alone. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. The paint can and the dude's <laughs> head. Oh, it's so it's good. Yes. I remember watching the trailer so and they're good. like, we're not going to home alone them, are we? And I was like, oh, I'm, I'm seeing this. And so it's it's just, it's a staple now in my household because I love it and it cracks me up. That's a fantastic one. We're going to have to watch that this this year. Well, thank you as always for joining us, Yutaka. You've been wonderful. Yes. Yeah. Do you have anything you'd like to plug? <laughs> Oh, God, let me No, I'm terrible at this, y'all just warning you. Okay, so we have a podcast um, at the Horror Hour TV on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. We um, we get gutted, rotted, filthy. Um, so there's that. Mm-hmm. And then um, we also have where we do interviews. And if you notice as of late, it's been a lot of Terrifier 2 content, but we do have more with Symphony, A Wounded Fawn, and some others, um, Blood Relatives. And then we do have a Patreon where we're doing After Hours, where if you really want to see us get rotted, we, yeah, it's bad. It's real bad. So yeah, but we have a good time. That's all that matters. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you're looking for some holiday cheer, mm-hmm. my book Saints Blood is not the right book. Give that to your enemies or something. It's not. Uh, on the contrary, because I laughed a lot reading it. Oh, thank you. It, it is sick humor. And so I love that. 
Mm-hmm. There is so much petty in this. And I, yes. Yes, definitely pick up a copy of Saints Blood by Ryan C. Bradley if you haven't already. It is horrific. It is twisted. And if you're into body horror and nice little mystery, I think you're in for a treat. Thank you listeners for joining us and hope you have a great haunted holiday season. And may we bring you more grim, dark, and mischievous times in the future. Bye, y'all.